You're listening to Fox on the Wire podcast. Well, welcome everybody to episode number 66 of Fox on the Wire. We have a very, very, very special guest tonight and uh, I'm stoked that we've been able to get him back on the show. One of our favourites, Mr. Ashley Naylor from Melbourne's legendary rock trio, Even. Welcome, Ash. Thanks for having me back, mate. It's good to be here. Now, there's no one uh, I would rather share this episode that we're going to focus on today with uh, for, for many reasons, uh, one of them being you were actually uh, around at the time that this album was released. Um, I was alive too, but I wasn't savvy to what was going on at the time, but you were. So we're going to get a, a first-hand take of what was what the time was like when this album was released. Uh, so we're here today to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Nirvana's Nevermind album, which was released on September 24, 1991, which was the same day as Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Same day. Same day. Wow. Didn't know, didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was a couple of others too. I think uh, uh, Pixie's album as well. Um, there is a whole list. Wow. Quite quite a few. And uh, just this month alone was crazy in 1991. Uh, I think the previous week was the Guns N' Roses Use Your Illusion albums. Bloody um, hell. Just a, a crazy month. <laughs> yeah, obviously this is a massive album. And uh, like I said, I'm absolutely wrapped that we can get you on the show and, oh, uh, mate, and talk to you about me. it. Thanks for asking me. <laughs> so... What was it like at that time, Ash, if you can venture back that far? It was, well, I remember seeing them in the summer of 92, but a year before when the record came out, I remember a mate of mine had a tape of it, like you know, a bought cassette, and I, I brought it off him and played it, and it's like the penny dropped after a few listens. It's like, okay, this is kind of like a heavy metal version of the Pixies, you know? Yeah. And that's a really broad um, pigeonhole, but... I wasn't really into hard rock at that point in time. I'd sort of um, had a bit of a flirtation with hard rock in my early teens, like with Iron Maiden and um, yeah, maybe a little bit of Yngwie Malmsteen, I'm not sure. but uh, Oh, yeah, yeah nice. Early <laughs> stuff, but then, and there's a bit of ACDC, but Zeppelin was probably the only heavy rock band that I listened to from early teens to now. And then it didn't have a massive punk rock phase, but when Nirvana came along, it was like they kind of uh, – I don't know, it was something else altogether, you know, it had a bit of a hard rock element, but also had a bit of a punk element, a bit of a pop element. So it just, yeah, it just, it, it, it really did take us all sort of by surprise, like this incredibly powerful music, but also incredibly melodic. Yeah, well, I think Kurt said, you know, the songs on the album were influenced by bands such as the Pixies, R.E.M., the Smithereens and the Melvins, so there's quite a mix in there and like you said it sort of meshed together like punk yeah. and rock and pop and uh i don't think even the band or the record company obviously expected it to sell as much as it did because uh, i think they only did or they expected it to sell like fifty thousand copies from memory and then uh it just started taking off and you know 30 million albums later sales yeah. later down yeah. the track well, I've, I've read that book um, by Danny Goldberg, the former manager, Bumping Into Geniuses, and the chapter on Nirvana is obviously quite heartbreaking, but also exciting just the way that um, 
yeah, just like you said, the expectations for Geffen were quite realistic or yeah, reasonable based on, you know, Sonic Youth's kind of sales figures and Sonic Youth were one of the um, catalysts for Nirvana signing with, um, you know, Geffen and Danny Goldberg and that, that crew. So, yeah, it was it's one of those unforeseen cultural shifts and I guess a lot of the great ones are unforeseen. Um, mm. And, yeah, getting back to what you're saying about Kurt's influences, like I saw the Smithereens around the early 90s in, at the Palace, same venue I saw Nirvana at, and the Smithereens were an incredible incredible band they took me by surprise there's a live a live band they were just amazing i saw rem in 89 a couple of years before i saw nirvana and you could sort of sense that that link the, the, the lineage of songwriting that kurt was you know branching out like because the bleach year is, is pretty it's pretty flat out hard rock and the songs are catchy but they're not with the exception of um about a girl they're, they're not as um i guess melodically um you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Abundant as, as the ones they are. Never mind. Never mind. It's just it's like a pop out heavy metal pop kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, you can see the influences of and, and, and the REM influence sort of seeping in later towards in utero. And they often refer to the, you know, the quiet verses and loud choruses similar to the Pixies, uh, which I guess they borrowed uh, from the Pixies. Uh, w- were you familiar with the Bleach album? prior to you hearing Nevermind? I was, but again, it was a tape. A mate of mine, uh, Tony, had a tape of it. And um, I remember we were down in St Kilda one day. We, I think we'd gone to a gig at the Palace and either on the way to the gig or the way home from a gig, Tony put Bleach on. And the first thing I thought of was Black Sabbath. I just thought, these guys sound like Black Sabbath. And um, that was just a, a very sort of uh, – unsophisticated pigeonhole that I put Nirvana in at that point. And this is, you know, around the Bleach era. And then the transition from Bleach into Nevermind was quite a quite a leap. In such a short time too, really. I mean, Bleach came out in 89. They demoed some of the songs from what would become Nevermind in 1990. And then obviously Nevermind released in 91. It's quite a short period of time that they really honed their craft and obviously, Nevermind had a bigger recording budget, much bigger recording budget than uh, than Bleach, and they were able to work with uh, Butch Vig. So there was a few factors in there, but um, it is quite a big jump from Bleach to Nevermind in terms of the songwriting and the production. Um, so sure Kurt is, yeah. Obviously, was accelerating as a songwriter pretty at a pretty fast rate. Yeah, I mean, and that, and that's the thing: the songs are the key, like. We all know and remember bands from that period, but Nirvana songs are something else again. Like you, you can't, you can't, try, you can't write a Nirvana song. If you try and write one, you just it just sounds weird. Like that, that's the beauty of I think of songwriting. Um, and when someone with a freakish talent comes along like that, it, 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 it yeah, it is, it is kind of like a once in generation thing. Um, there is a pattern to his songwriting, but melodically the songs are just so so rich. You know, like the songs they do with they could stand up on their own just with an acoustic guitar because the melodies are so strong. Um, yeah, but like you said, a short period of time from from Bleach to Nevermind mm-hmm. is, is is astounding. And then if you inject Dave Grohl into the picture, you um you, you end up with something that's it, it's it's just this 
magnificent um, injection into the to the band, you know, to because he's like one of those drummers where you almost immediately air drum to on oh, Nevermind. Yeah, the, the drum parts are just they're pretty um, they're pretty memorable, and I, I know he's he's, he's credited um, Chad Channing with a lot of those parts, but um, that said, Dave Grohl's drumming on that record is 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 quite. Um, I hate to use the word iconic, but <laughs> iconic, I guess, is the word. Yeah, yeah, powerful, and he just uh, that third piece, which was him, it just solidified a solid three-piece unit, much like even. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, we're on a different end of the musical spectrum. We're a bit more on yeah. the jingle jangle side of things. But <laughs> I, know, I know what you're saying. It's like uh, the components. You know, the, the components have to be there, and and. Um, not to not to um, downgrade anything that came before, never mind, but um, there's just something. Yeah, obviously, it was just one of those things that clicked immediately by the sounds of it. Because uh, Dave was like, was he the fourth or fifth drummer that Nirvana had? <sighs> yeah, I've, I, I don't know the lineage very well, but um, yeah. I know that, um, yeah, they had a few. I, I didn't a drummer for Mudhoney play on one of the singles as well. Yeah, is that Dan, Dan Peters? Dan Peters, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's one of those things. Watching a band sort of um, evolve in public. A lot of bands uh, have their evolution prior to getting signed. Whereas Nirvana, I guess they they evolved throughout the course of their releases, and they ended up with that sort of that sweet spot in terms of their lineup around the Nevermind onwards period. And unfortunately, it was only a couple of years. Yeah, a lot happened in such a short period of time. It's uh, pretty crazy, much much like Guns N' Roses. I mean, I'm sure it's happened to a lot of bands as well, but you know, in such a short period of time, even Led Zeppelin, what were they around for like 10 years, 11 years? And look at all those albums and that the damage that they did, you know, all the, just uh, made a huge impression on the, the landscape of music uh, forever uh, in such a short period of time. So when Nevermind was released, it arrived at a modest number 144 on the Billboard 200 chart in 1991 of September 1991. Uh, by November, it had entered the top 40 for the first time and reached number one in January of 1992, overtaking the number one spot from the king of pop, Michael Jackson himself. Uh, and then Nevermind went on to spend a total of 252 weeks on the Billboard 200 albums tally and then it was knocked off by the number one spot by garth brooks wow <laughs> yeah what a stat <laughs> roping in the wind <laughs> so the lead single smells like teen spirit peaked at number six on the u.s billboard hot 100 and its video was heavily rotated on mtv uh how important was that first single being smells like teen spirit and the accompanying video do you think did that set it all in motion? Well, I guess, I guess history tells you that it did, yeah. <laughs> um, I can't remember the first song. I can't even remember the first time I heard that song. Um, I think could someone lend me the cassette of the album, I probably listened to the whole album sort of over and over, and then that's when other songs started jumping out. But in terms of, like you were saying about all the other records that came out in that period, like nothing else sounded like Teen Spirit. No. <laughs> that's a good idea, sure. No, and uh, I think the video, I mean, looking back from my perspective now, had a had a big impact on the success of the song and the album as well. Like the video was the perfect 
video for that song and to sort of kick off the album and its release. So it was released just before the uh, the album came out. And um, funnily enough, I don't think Kurt was happy with the uh, director's edit of the first the first edit of the video. Uh, Sam Sam Bayer Bayer. Um, so Kurt flew back to LA and um, personally edited the the video. So I don't think he gave too much props to to poor old Sam, but I think it kick-started Sam's career. He was pretty desperate as a director and somehow landed Nirvana, and um, that was good for him. But, yeah, Kurt wasn't overly wrapped, I don't think, but uh, it was a a great video, and it's still a great, great video. Yeah, that's the artist's way, though, isn't it, to try and uh, perfect (laughs) things and refine them and finesse them and uh videos are videos are fought with peril you know whether it's a 200 hundred dollar budget or a two million dollar budget they're just absolutely fraught yeah but i think teen spirit is still as powerful today as it probably was back then when it came out like when that comes on the radio you can still like it still sounds great doesn't sound dated still sounds powerful and uh i can only imagine what people thought when they first heard that on the radio, when it came out, it's like, what the hell is this? Um, yeah. You know, you often hear some of the the guys from the eighties and the hair bands, when they first heard it on the radio, they, they knew straight away their careers were over, uh, which is a pretty <laughs> powerful thing to, to happen. So. Yeah. Well, it's, it kind of, you know, it's, uh, it's an unapologetic, um, straight. It's, it's just, it's just such a straightforward, Yet complex in itself, piece of music. Um, uh, it you know, like there's no, there's no, there's no second guessing. There's no you know, dancing around the subject. Like that song is just flat out, straight out of the gate. You know, and probably the heaviest thing to be on the radio for a long time. I suspect mm. you know, probably heavier, heavier than Guns and Roses because they're, they're, they're obviously coming from a different mindset. That LA kind of, you know, rainbow kind of Roxy kind of mindset, but. Um, Nirvana were coming from a completely different perspective. And, uh, yeah, because there was no precedent for a band like that to become a commercial success, they obviously went in there to record their music with nothing, no agenda, I guess, other than to make a great rock record. Mm. And uh, they sort of say that they were pretty well rehearsed before uh, they went in to record. The album obviously did some of the earlier demos, I think in 1990 with Butch Vig. I think that was with... uh, uh, Channing, Chad Channing. Yeah. Uh, so they'd obviously done a bit of demoing, but they said they were pretty well rehearsed before they went in with Butch to record um, at Sound City in uh, Van Nuys in California, which um, Dave did that documentary on Sound City a few years back, which was great and um, sort of took us back to them using the Neve 8028 analog, analog mixing console, which Dave... I think ended up buying. Uh, did you yeah. did you see that doco, Sound City? I saw, I saw, yeah, I saw, I saw a lot of it actually. I, I um, yeah, I, I uh, always fascinated by studio documentaries. They're just to me, they're just um, so intriguing. You know, capturing a band, you know, on the cusp of something magical like that would have been would have been a wonderful experience. You know, for everyone involved. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, just sounded like it all came together at the right time. And you know, Dave was, uh, or his previous band Scream had, I think they broke up on tour, and uh, 
I think someone called him and he's like, do you want to try out for Nirvana? And the rest is history. It was the, the missing piece that they needed. Yeah, like I said before, is, is it, the, the drumming on that record is just it's phenomenal, you know, like <laughs> just the, the drum parts are riffs unto themselves. You know, you find yourself air drumming along to many of his uh, drum fills, you know. Yeah, and the first time they played um, Smells Like Teen Spirit, they needed gas money to drive down to LA to record, never mind. So they played a last-minute show at the OK Hotel on April 17th in 1991, um, and the drummer from the Seattle band The Gits, Steve Moriarty, recalled the band walked away with a few hundred bucks, drove down to LA, and the rest is history. So, and I think that's uh, been circulated a bit, that performance of Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time. And you could just see how much, uh, how much energy the crowd had hearing that song. Do you remember what it was like when you saw him in 92? Oh, it was, it was phenomenal. Like, um, I went to the All Ages show in the daytime. So, what, you know, it was, yeah, you sort of, it was a, I think it was a beautiful sort of summer's day from memory. And, we, you know, we're outside St Kilda in the day, in the sunshine, going into the palace and just this real buzz of excitement because it, you know, you're seeing a band who's on the absolute ascent into, um, you know, it wasn't sort of common. It wasn't wasn't common for a band like that to be climbing up the Billboard charts, you know. And and Australia sort of embraced it wholeheartedly. But seeing them live, I, I, I can remember specifically on a plane that song that that's and um, and just sort of there. You know, if you watch lots of footage of Nirvana, as we all have, um, you see how irreverent they were. They could play, they're such really good players, but they were very irreverent. I mean, at the end of the show, uh, Kurt was doing a big feedback solo and um, Chris and Dave came out with towels over their heads, sort of like monks, and they were bowing to Kurt, and, you know, in, in a sort of like a like, like a Zen monastery mixed with a guitar shop. It was, it was just freaking... Awesome, you know, just great theatre, even though it was completely improvised. It, it was nothing pretentious about it. So yeah, it was on a plane that stood out to you, or well, that's sort of what you remember most? Yeah, that's the song yeah. that I, I remember um, leading up to the gig. I remember, I hope they play that song, and they did. And, yeah, that's that would have to rate as probably my favourite song off that record. But I, I, I don't have any specific memories of other songs throughout the set, mm-hmm. but other than that song, just knowing that I was very keen to hear it and they played it and it was just a, a beautiful payoff. Wow. What song off the album do you think, oh, it's probably a hard question, but what song off the album sort of sums up the album for you? Like for me, I think it's Come As You Are or Lithium. Yeah. Just, um, yeah. Well, I think, I think probably Come As You Are and On A Plane for me, Come As You Are because you've got that sort of chorusy guitar sound which pops up throughout the record and it's got the, um, you know, come as you are melodically. It's just, is it a wonderful piece of music? Um, and it's got, you know, it's got all the Nirvana elements to it. It's got a a, a nice melodic verse and a heavy chorus. But for me on a plane is, is it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's something about that song as well, which I think is just, it's, it's kind of a quint, quintessential Nirvana song. It's powerful and melodic, you know. It's very poppy too. And maybe, yeah, that, that's right. It, 
you could sing it in any style and it's still a killer song, you know. Mm. Did you um did you enjoy the acoustic version a couple of years later when they play it at Unplugged New York? Unplugged? Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah I enjoyed that record. I um, it's great hearing those songs um in that format because it just reminds you that a great song can be stripped back and it's still so melodically strong that it, you could almost just sing the vocal melody on its own and it'd, it'd be, you know, you could carry it along. But yeah, I, I like the unplugged version, mm. but I do, I do sort of prefer the, um, the flat out rock version on, on Nevermind. Yeah. And sort of on the flip side, like there was an acoustic version of Polly on Nevermind. And then they did like a new wave version, which was the electric version uh, on Incesticide. I think that was released in like 92. I probably didn't get into that as much as the acoustic version. Whereas on a plane, like I'm pretty much, you know, on the level with either the electric version or the acoustic version. Uh, yeah. Do you prefer the acoustic version of Polly or the, the new wave? Um, I'd probably take the album version Based just based based on my own familiarity with that version, and um, I don't play Incesticide from start to finish as much as I've played Nevermind from start to finish. So I think it's probably more a familiarity thing, and um, it, it 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 sort of poses a conundrum for the music fan as well, having different versions of the same song. Mm. Um, but I guess the nature of Incesticide being what it is, essentially a compilation album, um, it's going to throw different curveballs to the fans, you know, like um, there's so many versions of aneurysm on YouTube, but when you hear the recorded <laughs> version on Incesticide, you think, oh, wow, that's how the harmonies would go if, you know, you had multiple harmonies in a live situation. So you've just, you've just got, it's just personal taste thing, but um, yeah, I guess well, well, this chat that we're having now might actually make, revisit um, Incesticide and have a listen to the new wave version. Yeah, it's definitely a couple of gems on that album, I think. You know, it doesn't feel yeah. like an album. Like you said, it's more of a compilation. Uh, well, that's right. It, it is. It's you know a whole bunch of different singles and yeah. um, you know tracks from isolated releases. So it's it's. Um, I, I guess the cynical side of it is it's the record company taking not taking advantage, but making the most of mm-hmm. um, a band at the, at the sort of the height of their commercial powers and just so getting all the other material together and presenting it to the to the, the new fan base. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I don't think of it as anything else other than a compilation record. Yeah. Incesticide, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't feel like a, an album like, like Nevermind, obviously, but uh, Guitar World said that uh, Kurt's guitar sound on Nevermind sort of set the tone for 90s rock music. Um, would you agree with that? Because, you know, even we're coming up, when was your first album? Was it 94 or 5? Uh, my first EP was 95. Yeah. And, um, yeah, look, I, I think it, it probably, um, I wouldn't say gave bands license to rock out again, but it, it kind of, you know, never mind, sort of provided a new template for what rock should or could sound like. And it, it I remember coming from the bands in the 80s where I'd use a, J, a Roland JC, JC60 amp chorus pedals and having a real post-punk kind of sound. And then when Nirvana came along, it's like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. I'm, I'm definitely going to go and buy a Marshall. And, <laughs> and I remember the first Even demos were quite influenced by that period, that, that Nirvana um, 
Bob Mould, pavement kind of era of no- noisy guitar, but the, 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 the specific sound of Nirvana's guitar was, was really chunky and really, really hard, you know. So, um, yeah, it, it, it definitely influenced so many bands after it, you know. And, like, when we did our first record, I um, the engineer put on a distortion pedal that I wasn't familiar with, I didn't feel overly comfortable with, but he said, people's ears have changed, you know. <laughs> And I think a lot of that was attributed to Nirvana and the music that came out in their wake. Yeah, they seem to, well, they were credited with, you know, sort of kicking down the door for a a lot of music that was to come throughout the rest of the 90s. And, you know, I think it was probably a collective effort from a lot of other bands, but Nirvana definitely Absolutely. definitely kicked it in. And, uh, yeah, Butch Vig said uh, Dre knew featured more gu- guitar overdubs than any other song. Um, there was one clean track and five distorted tracks. Uh, he was using a yeah, Mesa wow. Boogie amp, uh, two Fender Basement amps, um, and one they called the Super Grunge track, which was using a pedal on the Fender Basement. Um, and uh, it was said that Kurt didn't like using double tracks, so Vig had to sort of, well, he said John Lennon does it. And yeah. that was sort of enough to to get him to do it, or he was tricking him into doing another take. Uh, so I think it was a you know Kurt sort of grew to not despise, never mind, but he tried to get away from it, didn't he? From the success and the sound of it. Yeah, well, I've I've, I've watched a lot of those Butchvig um, mm. clips and read a lot of. Um, commentary about Kurt's reaction to the mixes and, and you know, you, you read conflicting stories like um, the Danny Goldberg book, for example, the, the main the main sort of feeling from that book is that, um, you know, Kurt was very mindful of how he, how the band was presented, you know, and how the band, um, the musical choices they made with regards to who they produ- who produced the records and who mixed the records. So having Andy Wallace mix it, it was a, you know, it was a, I don't, they didn't, I don't think they mixed it under duress. You know, obviously Andy Wallace is going to make you, make your record sound amazing. So, <laughs> but, I, but I guess um, you probably become self-conscious about it. If you had success on that level, you'd it'd, it'd kind of draw attention to itself in a way that you'd never experienced before. So, getting Steve Albini to make the next real good was a reaction to that, mm-hmm. obviously. So, Yeah, totally different sounding record. I, um, You know, the, the bonus track on the end of Nevermind, Endless Nameless, um, yeah. which was, listening back now, it kind of had hints of what was to come on in utero, I thought. Just, you know, like sonic sort of assault, just, <laughs> just yeah. very brutal. Um, and I th- how, th- how did they get onto Endless Nameless? I think uh, Kurt uh, got frustrated recording Lithium or something like that and they ended up just getting into Endless Nameless, something like that. I yeah, was okay. Yeah. I don't know the backstory about that track and it's it's not one that I um, find myself sitting through a lot, but um, I, I've read varying reports, not varying reports, but there's – some pressings didn't have the bonus, didn't have that track on there because I think in mastering some, some at some stage of the mastering and the first pressings of the record, 
that track was overlooked or the other way around. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, it's it's one of those kind of train spottery kind of um, chat group kind of topics. Yeah, it's um, it, like I said, it's not one of those songs that I kind of get around to listening to very often. Yeah, it's it's a good one to watch live, like on the on the old VHS tapes and, uh, you know, when they're trashing all the equipment at the end of it and stuff like that. I think like the Halloween show and uh, what was that VHS mix uh, cassette, uh, not cassette, videotape, uh, Live Tonight sold out, you know, the yeah. montage of all the different concerts. Um, but, yeah, it was accidentally omitted from the first pressing of Nevermind. That's right, yeah. Which yeah. led to many who purchased this version of the album later trading their copies for the less valuable second pressing. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I think one thing with Nirvana, I found they did good music videos. Like some bands just don't do great. They might have a couple of great videos, but all of Nirvana's videos I thought were really good videos. Like Sliver, um, Lithium is probably one of my favorite videos. You know, when you sort of see him catapulting himself into the drum kit and it just repeats, <laughs> like that's just, that's yeah. iconic now. And I just, I love that. Like that song just makes me feel just, I don't know, free or something. It's, it's a hard. Yeah. Well, it, it, it is, it is, it's a, you know, it's a, yeah, it's such a powerful piece of music. And like you said, that clip is, I guess, cause there's a humorous component to it as well, you know, like the, um, at odds with the heaviness of the music, which is a nice contrast, I think. And just seeing seeing Nirvana in their natural habitat, like wild young dudes with guitars and drums, just going nuts. And then, um, in contrast to that '60s kind of TV show, oh, I'm thinking of In Bloom. Sorry. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's another good video. <laughs> thi- another good. Yeah, video. I'm thinking of the In Bloom clip. Sorry. <laughs> there you go. I've made a mistake. <laughs> yeah. What were they trying to mimic off that? The uh, the Ed Sullivan show, I think they yeah, said. Just just shows of that era. Yeah, just the, the sort of yeah. But I'll have to look at the um, lithium clip. I haven't watched that for a long time. Yeah, that's uh, always and come as you are. Another good video. Like they just they just nailed the videos. And I think the same director did a couple of them. Um, what was his name? Kevin Kerslake. I think he did in Bloom, Lithium, and Come as You Are. Uh, he he did all three, and then he went on to do um, uh, Pantera, This Love, on the side. <laughs> so uh, yeah, wow, yeah, but uh, yeah, all great videos. Which obviously was a big MTV era uh, in the early nineties. So that wouldn't have hindered the success of this album. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I I got into this album, or well, I discovered this album, I think in late ninety five. So I was about. 14, no, 12, 13 maybe. And a friend of mine got it for his birthday in December in 95 and I had to wait till Christmas to get my copy. And I think we'd got into the Unplugged album shortly before. And um, I just, I still remember hearing this album for the first time and it just, it was just one of those albums. You know, I was bragging to it, bragging about it to a mate of mine and his mum when he picked, when she picked him up from my house, you know, playtime after school. Just one of those albums that just uh, I can't even say enough about it, you know. Yeah, well, it's a cultural thing, like it's a cultural shift, you know. Um, but when you boil it down, it's just it's full of great songs, and nothing beats nothing beats great songs, you know. Like 
it would have been a great album no matter what style it was wrapped in, but having great songs presented in that such a powerful musical way, it's, it's a force that you couldn't, you couldn't stop and, and, and the timing was right and, all, all, you know, the timing was right for them and, it, you know, the, you, can, you know, you can look back and sort of make all these, you know, um, sort of assessments looking back at it, but at the time it was just, it was all new, you know. Particularly coming out of the eighties as well, like um, there's a couple of eighties kind of flavors to the production, like with guitar, chorus, you kind of guitar things. But just it was just so fresh; it just sounded fresh and new. And, and let's not forget what a great singer Kurt was, you know, yeah. killer voice. Yeah, I remember reading like a lot of those bands at the time maybe didn't attract the female fan base as much as Nirvana did, and I don't know if it was in the. Uh, the Heavier Than Heaven biography. I don't know if you've read this by Charles R. Cross. I haven't, no. Yeah. No. Back when I used to read books, this was a, a beauty. Um, yeah. I think he said, like, the female fans loved Kurt's voice. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he had a great voice. Well the, other thing, well, the other thing is with the lyrics, like, Kurt was kind of obscure. He, he wasn't overly literal. Like, his, his, his lyrics are kind of evocative, so – they weren't um, steeped in some kind of rock cliche, and I think he was very mindful of that and very keen to avoid rock cliches with his lyrics. So that would be another attractive um, aspect of their music to people of, 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 of different, um, you know, different fan bases and different genders. You know, like it, it wasn't sort of homogenous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For so many great albums released that year in 1991, which We've been covering a few here on the on the podcast. Um, They're all very different. Like we were saying, like you know, the two Guns and Roses Use Your Illusion albums released like a week prior to this Nevermind album. Two very different albums, and you had Skid Row, Slave to the Grind, um, Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Chili Peppers released on the same day as Nevermind. Again, very different. You know, you got sort of nastier songs like Sir Psycho Sexy on there, and um, Definitely provocative sort of lyrics, uh, very different to, to Nirvana. Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger, released in October of that year. Temple of the Dog, you know, just just a crazy year for music and the Black Album. All very different albums, but all very successful for for each of those artists, and they just became classics. What was going on around that time, do you remember? <laughs> just... Well, I was, you know, I was in a different hemisphere than music. I was listening to the Stone Roses yeah. and um, My Bloody Valentine, who put out an album in '91 as well, Loveless. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of my entry into that world that you just mentioned was was pretty much through Nirvana, mm. you know, because I, I I hadn't really listened to much hard rock in the mid to late '80s. You know, um, I was I was in a different Orbit, you know, and and I guess maybe like after the eighties, the world was ready for some heavy guitars again. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and all those bands you mentioned, you know, are all exponents of hard rock in their own way. And you know, Nirvana are, are essentially a hard rock band, but they were probably the exception to the rule in so many ways. And and um, you know, Kurt's songs being kind of the main point of difference because they like I said they weren't steeped in kind of rock tradition they they were quirky and the chord progressions were unconventional 
you know, they had a familiarity to their sound, but the the songs were unconventional. You put those chords together and you think, how does that work? Yeah. How do you make that work? Because, I mean, he was a good guitarist, but he was no by, by no means a virtuoso, but he was such a good songwriter that he came up with original things using chords we've all heard before, I guess, but he was able to do it in such a way that was very creative and very curt, like no one else could really. Well, that's right, and it makes um, his kind of chord progressions make being flashy sort of obsolete. Yep. You know, you don't – when you've got songs that good, you don't really – you're not relying on the musicality to get another side of the music across. It's just potent unto itself, you know, like bar chord and a melody over the top and, you know, his vocal melodies – and the chords that he put around them and under them were just they were so complimentary, but so, like I said, so unconventional. And you can talk to your blue in the face and try and explain it, but you can't really explain it because that was a, a gift um, that was unique to him. Yeah. Yeah. Cause uh, obviously the whole grunge thing helped kill off hair metal, although, you know, you could say it was probably burning itself out anyway. And the landscape was just shifting. Anyway, but it's not like grunge killed off guitar solos either. You know, like all the grunge bands played guitar solos. They were just in a different sort of taste, you know, like Jerry Cantrell and Alice in Chains. Like how good are his guitar solos? Um, Kim Thiel from Soundgarden, uh, very different sort of guitarist, but he still played solos. Uh, Kurt, yeah. Kurt played solos. Absolutely. And then Mike McCready from Pearl Jam and all that sort of stuff. So. Yeah, they still had those guitar hero elements. It was just in a different style, would you say? Well, that's right, because the songwriting was very different. Like the, the previous bands you mentioned, uh, the song structures were probably more, and I use the word traditional, I use that word carefully, but um, the chord progressions in all the other bands were, were you know, Strong unto themselves, but Nirvana chord progressions are something altogether different. So you don't need, you don't really need solos. And Kirk could play an atonal, non-musical solo, and it would make perfect sense mm. in the way that Joey Santiago from Pixies would do a similar thing, because the bed of the song was so buoyant unto itself that the solo was just icing on the cake, really. And you know, Kurt's solos are very melodic and like in a cheap trick way, where the, the vocal melody would be, cop- you know, he played the solo would be the vocal melody, that kind of thing. Sort of, Yeah, it was no slouch on the guitar, that's for sure. But um, like I said before, he didn't really need to. Um, the songs were so economic as well. Like there wasn't many extended um, passages within those songs to go out on some kind of musical interlude. But, yeah, you're right. There was, you know, it was a great, a great period for, for guitar playing, you know. But um, Kurt, just by virtue of the fact that he was – a primitive guitarist, and I don't mean that in the, that's not a criticism, that's just a description. Um, he did make a lot of musicality. He, he made the concept of musicality almost redundant mm. just by the strength of his overall songwriting skill. But, it, you know, it, it's something that was natural to him. It, wasn't, it didn't sound forced. You know, it was, he had a style, obviously, but um, didn't sound laboured, you know. That was just him expressing his artistic... So, I mean, he was an artist, wasn't he? Whether it was painting or music 
lyrics or poetry. He was just, he was an artist, an all-round artist and knew how to express himself, I guess. Yeah, and um, it's, it's, it's important for people to have the outlet. And unfortunately, as, as everyone knows, um, with that comes the spotlight, um, you know, that he, he was placed under and that was part of the, the tragedy the tragedy of the, the Kurt story. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, in, in essence, like you said, he was an artist and um, there's so many artistic qualities to Nirvana that go beyond, like like you were saying, like being a visual artist as well, like a lot of the visual, um, a lot of the imagery of Nirvana is unique to Kurt as well, like, you know, the, the biological um component to their artwork and the angel wings on, you know, biological, um, you know, models of, of the human anatomy and that kind of stuff. It, it wasn't, um, it wasn't your run of the mill kind of presentation. Yeah. All of the, the baby fetuses and stuff like that. Like, I think he was pretty yeah, obsessed like was, with dolls and stuff, wasn't he? And yeah. Like it was, it, it, yeah. It was a bold, it was a bold statement and, um, not not to everyone's taste, obviously, but that's part of great art is that it can just provoke a reaction, you know, and, and they definitely provoked, you know, reaction, you know, musically and also um, culturally, mm. you know, people might flinch at some of the artwork and, you know, that that's just the nature of great art. It, it, it doesn't, it's not pandering to the masses, you know. Yeah, I always uh, enjoyed going through this. I don't know if anyone's seen this out there, but uh features a lot of his artwork in here. Um some of his paintings and just just Kurt um as an artist. It's really cool to to flick through. So if anyone hasn't seen that, pick pick up a copy and check it out. But uh before we wrap up today, um just one thing I don't know if you'd agree, but one thing that often sort of gets overlooked a little bit, you know, is Chris, Chris Novoselic's bass lines. His bass playing on this album, um, I think is phenomenal. Like Kurt's guitar parts, like we said, are, I don't want to say simple, but they're simple. <laughs> um, yeah. They're, you know, they're not, they're, they're not, compl- they're, they're, they're not complex. They're sophisticated, but they're not complicated. <laughs> yeah. They're not busy parts. Um, yeah. So there was plenty of room there for for Chris to play some amazing bass lines and really fill out that sort of low end. Um, I, I reckon his bass playing is phenomenal altogether, but definitely on this yeah, album. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, and it's really melodic playing, but it's also, you know, it's got a bit of a punk uh, flavour to it. But, yeah, it it is melodic unto itself. And In fact, on a plane, one of my favourite parts of that song is the bass run oh, yeah. into the last verse. Yep. Yeah, that's a bit that I wait for every time I hear that song, you know, like that little bass lick, and he did it on the Unplugged record as well. So it's, you know, it's that's the beauty of a three-piece as well. Each component can be, um, you know, focused upon. And, and yeah, he he was a wonderful bass player and also a wonderful musical comrade for Kurt, you know, like they they worked great together and, yeah, a great, um, yeah, a a great – counterpoint you know because you know and also the sound that he that he got playing gibson basses as well characterized the the tone of the band you know you've got that sort of kurt 
playing predominantly Univox and Fender guitars and then Chris playing predominantly Gibson basses. The Gibson basses have a very full and powerful sound. It's a, it's a great complement to that, the more sort of toppy Fender kind of guitar tone. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was quite a striking image. If you see the three-piece on stage, you know, you got Chris, what was he, like six foot seven or something like that. And then on the, on the other side of the stage you had Kurt was probably around five nine and Dave in the middle. And it was just a funny but perfect-looking uh, three-piece there. And, uh, you know, Chris was always very funny and a lot of wisecracks and interviews and that stuff, even on stage as well. Like he was a very funny guy and um, I always felt very sorry for him that uh, he lost Kurt, you know, because they were best friends as well growing up and I always felt very sorry for him afterwards after we lost Kurt. I just, yeah, I I felt a lot for Chris, you know, losing his his best friend like that. yeah, that, that was a heavy thing, and I, I really felt that, you know, reading the books and, and that sort of thing. Um, very sad. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a tragedy in day-to-day life. Um, and then I guess when it's in a – when your day-to-day life is public life as well, it, it gets magnified in in other ways. So it would be a very, very traumatic thing for everyone involved, you know, and, and you're right, being, being a friend, seeing your friend go down down that path would, you know, is a tragic thing, mm. definitely, yeah, absolutely. And uh, finally, what, what do you think, if Kurt was still alive today, what do you think he'd be doing? Hmm. It's a great question. You, you, you just wonder what um, kind of, turn the music would have taken because um, I, I guess a lot of people have probably thought that um, the Unplugged album unplugged album might have been a bit of a crystal ball into what, um, you know, the possibilities of Nirvana beyond in utero, obviously. But, um, yeah, I, you, you can never really speculate, but I, I, would, I would think that he'd have a bit of a um, – provocateur kind of approach to music and not feel at any stage to you'd think he wouldn't be a slave to the uh to the industry you know someone like that would would probably just appear when they felt the need to you know and yeah just uh i don't know what what are your thoughts on that well wasn't it said that him and michael stipe were going to get together and work on some stuff uh, prior to him dying um yeah i read an interview with michael stipe and he i think michael stipe had made a a call you know to sort of instigate them getting together i don't think they had a definite plan mm. but i think the i think based on the last thing i read that was i think michael stipe was reaching out to try and uh create an opportunity for them to get together and um and do something which you know who knows how that would have turned out? Mm. It might have been something quite beautiful, but um, it's another uh, another thing in the list of the great unknown. Yeah, because I think he wanted to get away from the the screaming and you know blowing out his voice all the time. So kind of imagine maybe going down an acoustic path or just 
maybe not doing much at all musically. I don't know. You yeah, you never know. He might have he, he might have done more painting. Yeah. <laughs> More visual art, you know. You just you, you, we'll never know, and um, you know that's that's part of the tragic tragedy of, of the Kurt story as well. Is it, no one will ever know what late what could have could have been. Yeah, it was a big loss, and even though I wasn't aware of Nirvana at the time that he passed, uh, I obviously took it on pretty heavy once I discovered Nirvana, and. Uh, yeah, it weighed heavy for a, for a long time and even still. And uh, it's funny, like something I could never come to terms with, even though, like I said, I wasn't aware of it at the time it happened. But, uh, yeah, it's a strange a strange thing. And it's uh, sad he's not here with us today, but um, he's obviously left a lot of great music behind for us, like a lot of great artists do. And uh, that's the beauty of music. Uh, lives on forever. Yeah, mm. that's so spot on, mate. Yeah, like um, not unlike the Jimi Hendrix thing, where something burns bright for a very short period of time, and the legacy is 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 untouchable. Mm. And um, that's not much consolation for the people near and dear to those individuals who passed on. But um, you know, we're all still reaping the cultural rewards of. of um, the art that those people left, you know, left behind. Uh, it's a shame. It's more than a shame that they can't, you know, couldn't have experienced more of life. But uh, that, that's, you know, that's the, uh, the tragedy of the whole situation. But um, yeah, a, a, a beautiful legacy. Yeah, and a massive album that I'm sure we could uh, pick apart all night and. Uh... I was looking forward to this episode, but I was kind of dreading it as well because I know I can't verbally get across how important this album is and sort of what it means to me. It's very hard to to find the words. It's just something you feel when you listen to it and yeah. obviously it was a big part of my growing up and getting into music and becoming a musician myself and it's maybe it's not even something I can um, comprehend and put into words at this point, maybe uh, maybe sometime down the track, but um, and you can't sort of explain what you heard when you first heard this album. Like, yeah, good songs, great singer, all that, but it was more than that. It was uh, yeah, it was the aesthetic of the of the music, and um, yeah, I don't think you can quite explain it. So, um, well, thanks, thanks, Ash, for joining us tonight and uh thanks for having me man it's been a pleasure to to uh talk about this album with you great to have you on the show again well thanks for having me mate it's it's you know i love talking about music and it's great to talk about nirvana because you know it's something that was important to me in my early 20s and and uh i was lucky that i was you know able to see them and you know buy their records when they came out and that kind of thing it was it was pretty cool yeah yeah awesome and uh where can people find you, Ash? Uh, even.com.au? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's our Ashley Naver official. Yeah, so that's um, where it's all happening for me right now. But, um, yeah, thanks for having me along tonight. It's great. It's really cool to talk to you again. My pleasure. And uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And uh, thank you, Ash. We'll talk to you again soon, mate. All the best. Yeah, same to you, man. And uh, take care. You too. Thanks, everyone.